Welcome to Digging a Hole, the Legal Theory Podcast. On this podcast, my co-host Sam Moyen and I, David Schleicher, talk about legal theory and whatever else is on our mind. Um, we have one quick announcement before we get into this week's episode. Next episode is our last of the season. It's a special episode, an Ask Me Anything, or rather Ask Us Anything episode, where we'll answer your questions. If you have questions for us that you'd like us to answer, go to our website at diggingaholepodcast.com uh, and um, and uh, enter in those questions. Uh, um, but today, we have a really super fun episode to, to get started on. Um, Sam, who's, who's going to join us this week? Uh, well, we got Nicholas Bowie, who is a, uh, a Harvard professor, and we are considering two of his papers, which seem different, but I think we succeed in bringing in the same frame and, uh, and, and push him hard, and he responds with incredible brilliance, I think. Yeah, such a fun episode and such a brilliant scholar, so um, we hope you enjoy it. As listeners of this podcast know, Sam and I have very different tastes. Um, so it's rare for us to be able to book a guest who so squarely falls into both of our interests. Nico Bowie is a historian and law professor at Harvard Law School, who writes about federal and state constitutional law and local government law. Professor Bowie's research focused on critical legal histories of democracy in the United States. He's written about the exclusion of workers from corporate governance, the exclusion of immigrants from constitutional governance, and the relationship between self-government, written constitutions, and judicial review. In 2021, the graduating class of Harvard Law School uh, awarded him the Sachs Frund Award for Teaching Excellence. And because all of that is not enough, he regularly litigates criminal and civil appeals. He's on the board of the ACLU of Massachusetts, the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights, uh, Mass Vote, People's Parodies Project. He sits on the city of Cambridge's planning board as an avid marathoner. So I guess what we're saying is that he's a ton of free time. Um, so uh, we really appreciate you taking the time uh, to talk to us, Nika. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Nico, it's amazing to have you on this podcast. So we're going to start with uh, a case comment that the Harvard Law Review will have published by the time this episode drops, and it's on the U.S. Supreme Court's decision last term uh, in, in the Cedar Point case. So um, I, I, I want to begin with um, kind of the um, the, just the argument you make up about the case in particular, which takes up a, a kind of strikingly um, like small amount of the of the case comment, and then move into the like just a, amazing frame that also is relevant to lots of your other work around um, what democracy is and what um, uh, it, resistance to it looks like. So I wonder if you could just start out saying like um, what 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 you argue about the the um, the case in particular, and I'd love it if you could um, kind of give some emphasis to the the really fascinating parallel you establish with um, Heart of Atlanta uh, it, uh, along the way. Sure. Um, so I first learned about Cedar Point versus Hasid through, um, I guess I was, I, I'm writing a case book right now and in editing the case book um, and teaching the Commerce Clause, one of the cases I teach is Heart of Atlanta, um, which is one of the early cases that upheld the uh, Civil Rights Act of 1964. And so one of the fun things about writing a case book is you have to actually edit through all of these um, opinions. And I was surprised when reading the full opinion in Heart of Atlanta 
that the challengers to the Civil Rights Act of 1964 not only made an argument that Congress lacked the power under the Commerce Clause, but also that the Civil Rights Act violated his 13th Amendment right against uh, slavery or involuntary servitude, and that it represented a taking uh, in violation of the Fifth Amendment. Uh, and that surprised me in part because it seemed like a really ridiculous argument. Like why, you know, to, to argue that the Civil Rights Act violates the amendment that abolished slavery seemed, uh, you know, ironic at best. But the takings argument uh, struck me as particularly interesting because the takings clause more recently has seemed to be this, or has had this potential of uh, being a real source of deregulation. And a couple of years ago, uh, the Supreme Court held that uh um, takings cases, so when people challenge laws for taking their property without just compensation, it could go through the federal courts as opposed to having to start in the state courts. And I wrote at the time that it looked like the court was about to start using the takings clause as a source of deregulation way more than it had previously. Um, and one of the reasons, I think, is just because the takings clause is so expansive. So the clause, it just says, you know, the government, uh, you know, um, private property shall not be taken for public use without just compensation. It doesn't define, you know, what shall be taken means or not be taken means. It doesn't even define private property. And it's pretty easy to, to describe every regulation as a taking. Um, so a law that prevents you from doing anything is a law that takes away your ability to do that. Um, and private property, defining what is private property, is also extremely discretionary. And not just in the sense that, you know, uh, over the past 50 years, the law of property has changed. But, you know, property is not just stuff. It's also your interests in stuff and your interests in other relationships with people. And so to describe a constitutional barrier to interfering with any interest you might have in anything as you know, a, a source of litigation strikes me as, oh wow, this is extremely broad. It is really difficult to imagine what the limit is going to be, should the court wish to take this clause and just run with it textually, as this is a taking of private property. Um, so when I first learned about Cedar Point, this was in the back of my head, the sense to which uh, it's possible to describe virtually every law as taking private property without just compensation. Like if it can apply to the Civil Rights Act of 1964, it can certainly apply to every other law that I think is really important. And so the case comment about Cedar Point came at it from that angle of, hmm, it appears that there is something in the Constitution that would give litigators the opportunity to challenge every law they don't like as a taking of private property without just compensation. Um, and reading the Supreme Court's opinion in Cedar Point, the court does not provide clear guidance on why that isn't going to be the case going forward, like what it is about um, the takings clause that has limits on it. Because the case before the court, which involved um, this regulation that had uh, been promoted in part because of uh, you know, the activism and organizing of Cesar Chavez and the United Farm Workers in the 1960s and 70s, um, the Supreme Court had upheld this access rule 50 years ago, uh, the first time the access rule reached the court. 
the court saw it, you know, it's uh, summarily affirmed a lower court holding that didn't violate the takings clause. Uh, but without even acknowledging that precedent and without acknowledging really the, uh, the scope of the rule that the court announced, uh, the court held that any law essentially that interferes, not just takes away completely, but interferes with a person's right to exclude other people from their property is a per se violation of the taking clause, subject to four exceptions that the court announced, in part, I think, to uh, uphold its existing precedents that it wanted to preserve, not including the precedent that uh, had previously upheld the access rule. And so, 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 oh, sorry. So just, just I, I want to get you to explain why you think um, that the, the attempt to distinguish Heart of Atlanta um, in the Cedar Point nursery opinion written by Chief Justice John Roberts is unpersuasive because, you know, you, you run through the kind of at least possibility that one could say, well, heart of Atlanta is about public accommodations and there's, you know, it's upheld under the Commerce Clause. And it's, of course, true that in that case, as we've completely forgotten and you've revived the, the litigant cited you know the the right to exclude a, that uh, that's allegedly and um, available under under the t- the the takings clause, but it was shot down then. And and you suggest there's no principled reason why, with that expanse of a reading in Cedar Point, it shouldn't you know destroy the anti discrimination regime that's been built by Congress and and so far. Um, supported at least, you know, with some exceptions by the judiciary. So just explain why you think there's no principal distinction available after this opinion. Sure. And I guess to do that, I'll also explain why I spent so little time on the doctrinal uh, arguments in Cedar Point. The doctrine in this area strikes me as very discretionary. And I personally do not think the Supreme Court is going to strike down the Civil Rights Act of 1964. But the reason I think that is not because of the doctrine. The reason I think that is because of external political pressures on the court. Like I think that just as people who issue opinions and have to socialize with other people who read those opinions, I, I just am really skeptical that the justices are going to you know, fraternize with everyone else after striking down the Civil Rights Act. Although I would have said the same thing about the Voting Rights Act before 2013. But so what I think is actually motivating the courts is not its reading of doctrine or its reading of precedent. I think it's politics. I think it's the same sort of considerations that, you know, if the court were not cabined by its need to express its judgments through the vocabulary of constitutional law, would say, we think these sorts of laws are fine, and we think these other sorts of laws are not fine. And from that perspective, the doctrine does not do much explanatory work. So the court does offer a principal distinction between Heart of Atlanta, which it upholds, or it, it doesn't uh, uh, seem to attack, and Cedar Point. In both cases, there was an employer who wanted to exclude certain people. In Heart of Atlanta, the hotel owner wanted to exclude black customers from the hotel. In Cedar Point, uh, the large agribusinesses wanted to admit some workers, but exclude union organizers, um, but potentially admit other people like tourists or um, other visitors. 
Uh, and so the Cedar Point employers said, so both employers in both cases said, we want to exclude certain people. The government is interfering with our right to exclude. And Chief Justice Roberts in Cedar Point said, well, there, you know, it's readily distinguishable when um, a business wants to, uh, when, when a business is generally open to the public and a company like Cedar Point that is not. And that, that was the extent of the distinction. Uh, the, the court did not explain, like, why, why does that matter? The court did not say, like, <laughs> because X. It just said, you know, it, it's readily distinguishable. And so it, it sort of leaves it to the reader's uh, inference to figure out, well, why? What, what is distinguishable about a place open to the public that's okay versus the context of Cedar Point where the uh, workplaces were not open to the public? And the, the one sort of explanation I can think of just reading the opinion closely and trying to figure out, like, what is supplying this distinction? Um, you know, the court says that uh, the reason why this interference with the right to exclude is a per se violation of the takings clause is because it is a physical appropriation. Uh, it's, it's as if, you know, government agents came and like physically dispossessed the employers of, um, you know, part of their land. Um, and I, I guess I just don't understand why that physical dispossession occurs in one context, but not the other. Yeah, so, I mean, I have to say, coming from very similar priors, I found um, Cedar Point a little less troubling than you did, or a little less likely for extension. And the basic reasoning is, again, very similar to yours, and I just want to see what you think about it, which is that the takings clause, as you note, is so broad that it has no stopping points internal to its doctrine anywhere. There's No one's ever been successfully able to defin def definitively determine the difference between a taking and a tax. Tax takes a percentage of someone's stuff, definitionally. What's a taking? What's a tax? I don't know. Similarly, conditional takings are absolutely necessary for some type of taking unless the government so the government can't do something underhanded at the same time. Like what's a conditional taking, what's a regulation is just an impossible distinction to draw. Um, uh, um, uh, and so the fact that the takings clause, that the court has not been able to define a specific doctrinal cabin here, it just seems to me uh, you go to cross all takings clause questions. And so it may be political restraints or logical restraints or ideological, but the takings clause has not thus far had too big an effect on broad politics. I mean, there are some, some, some limited areas, but the court has kind of gotten more aggressive and gotten less aggressive over time. And I think we're certainly, I think you're certainly correct to say that we are in one of those more aggressive eras, but it's always been kind of pushed back by the fact that there isn't a cap, that the lack of a cabining thing has kind of always pulled them back from the brink. So why are you so worried about it in this context when the, you know, they, you could use a taking clause to get rid of all of taxes? And certainly some people have been kind of, and, and no one's ever done that before, despite there being lots of anti-tax sentiment in this country. Yeah. So again, I, I don't, I, I personally do not think that all of American law is about to get struck down, right? E even though all of American law theoretically could violate the taking clause if you made a creative enough argument. Um, it doesn't even need to be a creative argument. Yeah, or it's just, just a direct, like, direct as argument. You know, it's yeah, a straightforward yeah, argument. Yeah, a it's like, it's like, right, right. Um, but but so what troubles me and the reason why I framed the, the comment the way I did is because what you're describing, like the court has gone up to the brink but declined to cross it. Like, so the limit there is the discretion of the justices. The limit there is like, well, what, what sort of like political risk are the justices willing to tolerate? Or just what do the justices think the law should be here? Um, and 
to the extent that the justices themselves are not accountable to some democratic body. So to the extent that there is no legislature overseeing the justices, there's no convention that's policing what they think. It's like, so it turns out that the constitutionality of law just determines on what these people think. Strikes me as profoundly anti-democratic. It's it's the, the scope of our political horizon, like what is going to be upheld and what is going to get struck down depends not on the fundamental law we want as an American people. It does not depend on what the legislatures think. It depends on what the justices are willing to say is a taking and what the justices say is not a taking. And it turns out the doctrinal underpinnings that distinguish those two things are just super mushy in a way that's really unpredictable. Um, and so that's why I end up framing the whole case comment really as a question about, well, what role should a court play in a democracy? Like, what is the role? We want uh, good laws to be enforced. We want bad laws to get struck down. I think everyone agrees about that. Uh, but we disagree about what is a good law and what is a bad law. Uh, we also disagree about our tolerance for uh, worst case scenarios, where some of us think, you know, if a legislature passes a really bad law, like that could be the end of democracy, it could be the end of the republic. We need to prevent that from happening, even if it means uh, checking the ability to pass basic good laws. Um, and so my, I, I decided to write this case comment as really a question about, um, you know, why does the Supreme Court play this role in a self-described democracy? Like, why, why do we have a government in which it turns out the ability to enact legislation depends on this discretion of these nine people? Um, and so in thinking about that answer, I started thinking a lot more about, well, what, did, what is democracy? Like, what do I mean by democracy? Um, and in uh, sort of describing a definition of democracy based on the work of democratic theorists like Elizabeth Anderson and Daniel Allen, um, and connecting that with the claims made by workers, so the United Farm Workers and others within the workplace, um, one connection that I drew was, uh, it, it turns out that many American institutions are just not democratic at all. Um, in fact, I would describe them as anti-democratic in the sense that they are built to suppress the spread of political equality. And this is true in the workplace to the extent that employers have, you know, just enormous amounts of power that workers completely lack in defining um, workplace conditions. But it is also true at the constitutional level to the extent that we live in a government in which uh, the most fundamental things that we are allowed to do depends on the discretion of nine unelected, unaccountable people. Okay, so so let's then, you know, get into this framing. And so you provided a perfect transition. Um, because, you know, the most natural way to, you know, kind of get angry about the outcome would be, it, you know, by reference to a theory of democracy as majority rule. Um, whether in general or you know, at the federal level, in this particular case, um, what's invalidated is a regulation that comes from a state, but you, you don't go there. Um, instead, you develop um, a different theory of what's at stake in democracy. And while in the second half of this podcast, we'll get 
back to your, you know, what some work you've done on the American colonists, like this is a blast from all the way back into the past, because this is like Nico's Grecophile turn. And we hear a lot about, you know, the Greeks and about um, isocracy, which I want you uh, to define and, and especially um, about um, a kind of, you know, private so-called democracy, which is a little weird because the Greeks did not believe in, you know, democracy in, in private, even as they're setting up something that you, you know, refer to as isocracy and, you know, a theory of law as isonomy in, in public. So could you just, you know, tell us like what's at stake in going all the way back to the Greeks for a theory of democracy as, political equality, um, at least for public and maybe for private purposes? Yeah, so um, I guess starting with the, the beginning, um, even though the Supreme Court is striking down this regulation that was enacted indirectly by the state of California, uh, so through legislation creating this um, agency that enacted this regulation, um, I, I don't see the question of what role a court should play in a democracy as a question of whether should courts defer to legislatures or should courts defer to more majoritarian bodies? I, I don't think that's the right analysis for a couple of reasons. But the, the main one is because uh, a case like Cedar Point is not directly a conflict between a court on one side and let's just simplify it and say a legislature on the other. Um, because the court in Cedar Point is not just you know, stepping into the situation on its own, it's stepping into the situation on the invitation of another legislature, of Congress. And so one of the things I mentioned in the piece is that Cedar Point is a case enforcing a statute that was originally enacted by Congress, the Ku Klux Klan Act of 1871, uh, which was designed to uh, stop state officials from violating the federal rights of recently enfreed agricultural workers of black people um, in the South. And that law continues to guide a lot of uh, judicial review of state law today. And in thinking about, you know, if I were, uh, you know, in Congress today and no law like the Ku Klux Klan Act existed, and I thought state officials are just violating civil rights of people, what would I do? I think I would try to enforce the rights that I think states are violating. And I would probably enforce it by getting some institution like a court to start looking at state laws and saying, do these comply with federal rights or not? And so the net sort of conflict here is not just between a court and a legislature. It's between Congress and the federal government and the Supreme Court against California. And so I don't think that a theory of democracy that holds that um, you know, courts should defer to legislatures really resolves the conflict here, because the question is, which legislature is the court going to defer to? Is it going to enforce federal law, or is it going to defer to the people of California? And so to escape that conflict, to, to, to provide some guidance in that conflict, um, I think you know, the, the way I approach it is um, by taking a step back and asking, um, well, you know, what, what is, in fact, the problem here? Like, what, what is the, the, um, the conflict with democracy here? And I think the ultimate conflict is not 
just that the court is disagreeing with the legislature. I think the conflict is twofold. One is the merits of the decision. So some decisions by courts can enhance democracy, some can inhibit it, however you are going to define democracy. Um, but then the second is, well, is the court subject, is the court acting as an agent of some sort of democratic or democratically accountable actor or not? And so, you know, if, to, to simplify the point, if the Supreme Court were enforcing the Civil Rights Act, and so Congress were really explicit about its instructions, like racial discrimination violates this law, court enforce it. And a court enforced the Civil Rights Act and concluded that a state law violated it. Um, and Congress disagreed. Then Congress could amend the Civil Rights Act. Congress could say, sorry, like we, we didn't mean it this way. Try again in the future. But in a case like Cedar Point, if Congress thinks the court got it wrong, there's nothing that Congress can do about it other than by you know, amending the court, by you know, putting more justices on the court, depriving the court of certain power, uh, or proposing a constitutional amendment. But formally, it's not just a question of statutory interpretation. And that is where I would draw the anti-democratic line, where the court's interpretation of the Constitution and a federal statute are not subject to any sort of democratic accountability. And that, that's what I emphasize in the piece is not just the court versus California, but uh, the fact that the uh, judicial supremacy. Um, and so my real conflict, my, my real objection here is the combination of judicial supremacy with federal supremacy such that uh, the court is the supreme actor in the American constitutional system. Um, and so that, that's the principal objection here. As I mean, I, I get that. I mean, in, you know, in fairness, it doesn't seem like the Cedar Point opinion dwells on kind of the, any, any congressional authorization to intervene. It's, it's a, it's a direct enforcement of the fifth amendment via the 14th and incorporation and so forth. Um, and so you could very well, and it seems like it would be like more textually adequate to Cedar point, you know, um, frame this as about, um, judges versus legislatures. But I really just wanted to give you an opportunity to say something about like why we should define democracy, um, like morally, um, and politically in terms of this Greek, this Greek stuff and, uh, you know, and then extend it in, in our modern circumstance into this, you know, private, private, the private sphere and private tyranny and government. Yeah. So the reason why I turn to Greece in the piece is in part to provide some context for the development of democracy as uh, because today I think um, so. So for personally, my inspiration, like for why democracy is important, is not because of anything that happened in Athens. Um but it, what's important is my sense of democracy as being important as a source of uh, political equality. And today, I think if you talk about democracy, there are many, many conflicting definitions of what, what do you mean by democracy? And one of the most common one is one that I identify with um, Joseph Sumpeter in the piece, which is uh, basically voting, uh, competitive elections. And so if there are competitive elections and majority rule, you have democracy. If you lack competitive elections, then you lack democracy. Um, and I think that that definition, uh, although intuitive on some level, uh, is insufficient. It's insufficient because you can imagine authoritarian systems that have elections 
um, elections can be pretty unfair, even if they're competitive. Um, elections can, you know, to the extent that elections do not actually set any agenda, um, then, you know, you can have elections all you want, like you can have union elections, but at the end of the day, the union's formal role is not making decisions for the whole corporation. It's one specific um, part of uh, the workplace governance. So the mere existence of elections, I don't think creates a democracy. Um, rather, what I find really appealing um, is the definition of democracy uh, that contrasts democracy as an idea with alternative forms of government that democracy has traditionally been contrasted with, like uh, aristocracy or oligarchy or monarchy. And that's to me is where ancient Greece or Athens is relevant because, um, you know, while I, uh, well, because of the taxonomy that distinguishes democracy from these other forms of government is not one that's like, oh, democracy has elections. Uh, in fact, you know, when Plato is talking about democracy, elections he regarded as aristocratic. Um, rather, uh, the, the thing that seems to unite uh, understandings of democracy from Athens through the present is the emphasis on people can participate on somewhat equal terms. Um, how, and so to the extent you have a democracy, the people within it um, are, have like equal power to speak, to participate, to make decisions. Um, and so the more recent work by democratic theorists like Elizabeth Anderson and Daniel Allen that I mentioned, uh, I, I find you know, to be far more rigorous than I am in this piece about why political equality is so central to democracy. But I think intuitively in explaining that intuition, I found it helpful to just contrast it over time, starting with Athens moving forward with, well, what is an aristocracy and why is it different from a democracy? Um, and the distinguishing factor that I find most intuitive is aristocracy is built on some form of hierarchy. Like by definition, to the extent you're going to have rule by the best, something has to distinguish the best from others to give them disproportionate power in contrast with a democracy in which it's a community of political equals. Um, and so all of that is to say that I find democracy, the, the most appealing definition of democracy to be the pursuit of a community of political equals in which everyone has the same power to make decisions. And even if that definition does not um, describe an existing form of government in the United States or elsewhere, uh, it's that ideal that gives an opportunity to critique existing institutions and say some institutions like Congress are not democratic, but they are more democratic than other institutions. And it's that relative democracy that I find uh, what, what gives me the opportunity to critique the court as being undemocratic. Because when I talk to students about this and I talk to other people about this and say, you know, why should the court be making these fundamental decisions as opposed to, say, Congress? A very frequent objection I receive is, well, Congress is terrible too. Like the Congress is, you know, some people are disproportionately represented in the Senate. Uh, the filibuster is really bad. Uh, Congress seems corrupt, or at the very least, wealth seems to play an enormous role in the decisions that Congress makes. Why would you trust them either? Um, you know, to which my answer is, those are all legitimate concerns that I think should be addressed. Absolutely. Um, but all of those concerns also end up affecting the court. And in talking about relative democratic um, uh, value, I think it's very difficult to say that the court is more democratic than Congress is, given all of the critiques of Congress. 
And so in thinking of how we should orient our um, political economy, I find it troubling to suggest that because of failures in Congress, we therefore should turn to a less democratic institution to make these decisions. Yeah, so that's exactly where I wanted to press you, because I found some contrast between your two democratic points here, which is that the your critique of the court actually sounds a little Trumpetarian in the sense that the fundamental thing for you that makes the court a, a non-democratic institution is not merely that it's aristocratic, because, I mean, all these institutions are built on hierarchy of choice, some in one form or another, but rather that it's not subject to competitive elections. There's no overruling it. There's no contestation for once once it's there. Um, they're appointed through democratic purposes. They're appointed by the president and go through the Senate and all that, but they're like what the absence of contestation or kind of any any other player is their their final wordness is what make what kind of reduces their democratic purchase. If it's not that, then you, I think you have to be able to say something relative about kind of outputs as much as about inputs to say because if the question is like are they likely to be furthering substantive views that are democratic, like f- furthering the views of your kind of your idea of what make a good labor democracy or a good consumer democracy or whatever thing, then we'd have to ask something about like, are they likely to be producing these outputs relative to some kind of some idea of responsiveness or something? Like, is the court likely under current conditions to be producing outcomes that match the opinions of people vis-a-vis Congress or something? And that seems contingent. Right, like it could be true, it could not be true, um, and so uh, is your critique really not Schumpeterian? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it is. I, I, I don't, I don't think my critique is Schumpeterian. I think that my critique is not ultimately that there are no elections for the justices. Um, you know, you can imagine. In fact, you don't have to imagine at the state level, most Supreme Courts are elected, um, and I think my argument is contingent to the extent that. The specific argument in this piece is limited to the federal government and the U.S. Supreme Court. I deliberately do not expand it to— But is it limited to today, right? So, like, it's not hard to imagine a world in which, say, uh, a norm or something exists that we appoint justices that aren't—that are pretty old, and therefore their terms are— of a, of a type with the U.S. Senate, maybe not, maybe longer, maybe shorter, but it can't be that six years defines democracy or something. Um, and then they're voting kind of the way the Senate is voting. Um, uh, um, they're not replaceable, but they kind of are replaced just because people die or whatever. Um, and so is it is it that it's not democratic now and it's limited to a current thing about the way American government is working in the last 20 or 30 years, which is not true about 30 years before? Or is it something inherent about the role of a Supreme Court that has that is, is never subject to elections? Um, I think it's more inherent than it is limited to right now. And, um, you know, one one way that I approach this question in, in teaching this in class is by imagining a dictatorship. And, you know, for many people, dictatorships are great in a sense, like if you agree with the dictator and you like what the dictator is up to, then the dictatorship, you know, should align with your substantive values. And you can imagine great dictators who go on, you know, they enact the laws that you want to see, they create a just society as you see it. Um, but, you know, if that goes on for, for 20 years under this great dictatorship, and then the dictatorship changes its mind, and the dictator's like, you know what, actually, I think I'd like to do something different today and forget all of the policies that I've had over the past 20 years that you agree with. I'm now listening to someone else, and I'm going to go do something different. Um, to me, reveals the instability of that 20 years of, like, good substantive legislation. 
Um, and uh, I really love the term that Philip Pettit uses to describe this situation of reserve power, where even if the dictator agrees with you and allows you to do what you want or um, enacts the laws that you want, to the extent that the dictator always has that reserve power to change their mind and to pull the reins, so to speak, um, the ultimately, you know, you are not political equals with the dictator. Um, and so I think elections are relevant for political equality. Um, you know, it's, it's difficult to imagine. Um, well, I, I won't say difficult to imagine. There, it's, it's possible to imagine democratic societies in which there are elections, um, certainly. Um, but the reason why they are democratic is not because of the elections. The reason why they are democratic is because elections, to some extent, give everybody the opportunity and you know, the same power as other people to participate in making community decisions. And so the objection for the court's absence of elections is not if they were elected, things would be good, but rather um, it would move toward a system in which we all have the same power to decide for ourselves, you know, well, okay, so we, we want some uh, seizures by the government to be compensated. We want some not to be compensated. Like we should make those rules um, and we should all have the same power to determine what those rules are. Um, and one way of doing that is through elections. One way of doing that is you could imagine, you know, forms of juries in which it's sort of like random and everyone you know, filters through. One way, you, there, there are many different ways of imagining a democratic society. Um, but one way that I think doesn't satisfy that definition is one in which people who are appointed by elected officials nevertheless keep that power indefinitely so that, you know, Supreme Court justices, frankly, just have more power than the rest of us in a way that it's impossible to imagine any form of like rotation or um, accountability that define other ways of ensuring that political equality uh, exists. And so... I wouldn't call it Schumpeterian in the sense that if there were competitive elections, I would be satisfied, but rather the critique is ultimately that it's not a system based in political equality. Okay. So a couple of final questions on, on, on this topic, which is obviously, you know, a fascinating. Um, so you've said that, you know, we don't yet know in a sense how democracy um, defined as, you know, self-government by political equals would be organized institutionally, especially in so far as there's not just public governance, but something kind of centrally at stake in Cedar Point, which is governance w within the so-called private, um, which, you know, might involve, you know, uh, union access to so-called private property and might involve workplace democracy and so many other things. But, you know, what, what I, I want to press you on is that the point you're making that, you know, whatever democracy involves, it, it in a sense can't be trusted until we have political equality is normally central to the defense of judicial power. Um, and it's central to the re rejection of, of, let's call it simple majoritarian um rule um and and so you're 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 invoking like a traditional rationale for judicial power in in some sense against it and and yet in that argument which is in you know brilliantly done there's there's a, a kind of double standard and i want to get you to reflect on 
kind of the argument in general, but also the distinction you make between Supreme Court power directed towards a co-equal branch of government at the federal level on the one hand and towards the states on the other. Because um, it's just, you know, unclear to me, you know, that um, it's always going to be the case that if we adopt your theory of democracy, that the federal Congress will be, if not democratic, then more democratic than the, you know, majority rule taking place on the Supreme Court. And it's also unclear to me that the Supreme Court enforcing the federal order is always or even generally going to be more democratic than what's going on at the states. And, and yet you, you just as a default kind of oppose judicial power exercised when it's against the, a co-equal branch of government and support it when it's exercised against the states. And it, I'm not following how we can reach that conclusion. Starting from a premise of democracy as a pursuit of political equality, I think there are two potential objections to judicial review of any legislation. Um, One is on the merits. So what what does the decision do? And the other is, um, I mentioned this earlier, the other is... uh, you know, to what extent is the court enforcing something that is more democratic than what it is striking down? So, you know, you could imagine theoretically like a super democratic constitution. Uh, the court is enforcing the super democratic constitution against an extremely undemocratic legislature. Um, you know, hypothetically. Um, but so, so taking those two points as completely distinct from one another, um, my argument is not that judicial review at the federal level on the merits is always bad and judicial review at the state level on the merits is always good. You know, I think that there have been federal laws that are terrible, state laws that are incredible, and judicial decisions that <laughs> uphold bad laws and strike down good laws and uh, do the reverse at both levels of government. Uh, so my argument is not to, to predict uh, and, and I think that this is super contingent uh, as to like, you know, on the merits, what is the court going to do? Uh, I, I think as a matter of U.S. history, the court has a better track record on the state level than at the federal level. But that's very contingent. And in other governments around the world, I'm sure that it's a different story. Um, but so putting that on one column, like, OK, so on the merits, empirically, predictably, like what, what would you expect the court to do at the federal or state level? I think there are reasons to think that, um, uh, you know, the court might be better at one level than the other. But setting that all aside, there is the separate question of, OK, so is the court enforcing um, the sort of is the court acting as the agent of a body that is more democratic than the one that it is interfering with? And to that extent, I don't think that Congress is inherently more democratic than a state legislature. Um, I don't think that a state legislature is inherently more democratic than Congress. Uh, But I do think that that gets into bigger questions about federal supremacy uh, versus subsidiarity. Um, And, you know, as Nestor Davidson has argued in a different context, like that is super normatively ambiguous as to if you can just have a by the book rule of federal supremacy or like centralization versus subsidiarity. And so I don't take issue in this piece with federal supremacy. 
Um, I think as a contingent matter in the United States, federal supremacy is a good thing, um, you know, for all sorts of uh, reasons. Um, and I can imagine defending it on more universal terms. Um, but in the context of, um, you know, whether uh, judicial review of a state is democratic or not, I think it turns less on the question of the court's involvement and more on the question of the federal government as a whole. Like the democratic argument against uh, uh, of the Supreme Court's interpretation of a state law should be analogous on that regard to the argument against the uh, Congress's preemption of a state law. And so to the extent that, you know, the federal government's preemption is also undemocratic, like the, the same argument should apply to the extent that what you're criticizing is not judicial review, what you're criticizing then is federal supremacy. Um, and so that strikes me as an argument about the federal government as opposed to the Supreme Court. Okay, fantastic. So you've been on fire lately and, and we just want to give some love to uh, something else that's come out. It's all in 2021. Uh, same year. It's directly on point too. It's, I mean, it's it's clearly the same question, just refracted yeah. for a different set of questions. Yeah, I've been thinking about this Sorry, question a, great a lot. Scholar. So, just for our listeners, it's it's in the Yale Law Journal. It's entitled "The Constitutional's uh, Right to Self Government." It's it's an interpretation of uh, a a a forgotten or marginalized piece of the First Amendment, and it it builds a case about. Um, Samuel Adams as community organizer and about pre-1776 uh, traditions of uh, assembly and self-rule. So could you just give us a sense of like what you do in the article before we ask a few questions about it? Yeah, so I came to this article through doing research for a different topic and was struck by how in the 17th century, and so the, the, the story actually involves um, Boston in the 1680s. Um, and in the 1680s, Boston was run by a corporation, the Massachusetts Bay Company. The corporation's charter was vacated by the British government, who replaced the corporate government with a governor who could issue legislation on his own without any sort of elected representation. Um, and one of the edicts of this governor uh, involved raising taxes. And so this community in Ipswich uh, in northern Massachusetts complained, raising an argument that 100 years later would become far more common of no taxation without representation. That, you know, this seems really unjust that the governor is going to raise our taxes, even though we did not elect the governor, that we never consented to what the governor was up to. Um, and so the governor responded by um, banning Ipswich from meeting as a town meeting to protest uh, this, um, uh, these taxes. And the response of the people of Ipswich to the governor taking away their ability to meet is, you are interfering with a right we have always exercised under the charter government, which is this right to assemble. And when I first read that in this other context, I was struck by like, oh, that's interesting. That sounds like the right to assemble we'll see in the First Amendment 100 years later. I wonder what the connection is. And looking through scholarship, I did not see like anyone draw the connection, which is understandable because it's Ipswich in the 1680s versus the First Amendment. But even looking closer to the First Amendment, 
um, at like other major documents issued during the lead up to the revolution, um, like the second uh, 1774 Declaration of Resolves um, uh, issued by the Continental Congress. Uh, there's like a list of what the colonists thought were among the rights of all colonists, which included this right to assemble. And I was curious, like, okay, so is this the same story? Like, is it, uh, is the right to assemble that they were talking about what I had come to the assembly clause thinking? Like, is it the right to march and protest and uh, get together with other people and express your concerns? Um, or is it like Ipswich? Are they talking about the right to meet as a town meeting? Um, and so just looking to see like where, where, who is using the right to assemble before the 1770s? Like where is it coming from? In what context is it being used? Um, the pattern I noticed just looking through all the, um, the colonies, uh, so not just Massachusetts, even though I end up focusing on it, um, was that the right to assemble typically came up in the context of governments. Uh, when people are talking about the right to assemble, they're not just talking about the right to get together. They're talking about the right to legislate and the right to force people to listen to their legislation, the right to coerce people into accepting uh, their uh, laws and their ability to rule. And so Samuel Adams ends up playing a central role in the piece in part because he's the author of so many documents that start invoking this right to assemble very early on. Um, and the ultimate argument of the piece is that when um, uh, the colonists first start constitutionalizing this right to assemble, um, while, you know, I think the traditional story is certainly plausible in the sense that um, the right to assemble can encompass the marching and protesting, um, the thing that I think is neglected about why would anyone want to protect a right to assemble is its significance to town meetings and general assemblies. So the ability of the New York General Assembly to issue its own rules without being subordinated to a parliament that closes it down or, or a crown that closes it down until it complies with its decisions, or the ability of the Boston town meeting to assemble uh, without uh, it you know, being invalidated on the ground that Boston is acting beyond the scope of its local powers. Um, and so the net so I, I ended up presenting this, this piece um, at Yale and had a great conversation with David about it because when I initially approached the piece, I was thinking, oh, this seems like an interesting, um, not, uh, this seems like an interesting protection today, not just of government as a whole, but specifically local government. Um, you know, the Ipswich town meeting, the Boston town meeting, the, the New York General Assembly, um, all, all of these seem, uh, like an argument for why the, the importance of local self-government. Um, but I think both the, the, there are two issues um, that David raised during this conversation that I had also been thinking about beforehand and ended up agreeing with so much that I amended the piece. Um, one was historical, which is, you know, a lot of the time that the right to assemble is uh, being discussed among the colonists. It's in a specific context in which um, parliament had the ultimate power um, within the British system. Um, and there was a question about parliament's jurisdiction over the colonies or the crown's jurisdiction over the colonies. Uh, but uh, after the revolution, once Massachusetts became a state with the right to assemble baked into its constitution, there was a conflict uh, among some people who thought the right to assemble protected 
town meetings and county conventions and all sorts of other um, sort of extra legal forms of government. And the legislature, who thought, no, the right to assemble refers to specific governments that have been recognized by the Constitution. Um, and I think David raised the question of like, if the right to assemble protects local governments, then, you know, there are like tens of thousands of local governments. Like, why doesn't it also protect a neighborhood? Or why doesn't it also protect your household? Or why doesn't it also protect just like you and your friends who want to govern? Um, how could this possibly grant any sort of immunity from other legislation? Um, and I, th I think the, the second point that that translates to is in thinking about a constitutional protection, um, you know, like what should its significance be today? Like to the extent that people in the 1770s thought this right to assemble meant one thing, that does not translate to people today should interpret it the same way. Uh, nor does it translate to we should hold ourselves bound or obligated to follow anyone's interpretation at the time. Um, and from that perspective, I thought that what I was doing in the piece was not offering the way we should interpret this, but rather this offers some guidance for thinking about, you know, what values might we want to constitutionalize um, going forward. And so the final version of the piece that was published uh, removed the local from the title. So instead of a constitutional right of uh, local self-government, it's just the constitutional right of self-government. Um, and I tried to limit its uh, application to context analogous um, to the, the colonial system. And so I think in a context like Puerto Rico today, uh, it's highly relevant that, you know, Puerto Rico is subject to the supreme power of Congress relative to the local legislature. Like, I think you could imagine many of the same arguments made by a contemporary Samuel Adams in Puerto Rico. Um, but it also focused specifically on what, like, uh, in, in thinking about what, should, like, in, in thinking about the Constitution, um, it's particularly state constitutions in which the assembly clause is is everywhere. Um, like, who should be enforcing this? To me, that's totally unclear um, because I don't think you know courts should necessarily be going around enforcing this. Nor do I think that legislatures should have to enforce it. It, it seems more like a guiding principle than this uh, focus of litigation. Yeah, so I, th I remember the conversation. It was really, really terrific. And I learned so much from this paper. I thought the history was really interesting. I wanted you to talk a little bit, though, about some of the presentist concerns, um, because I think that there there's a, some some deep analogies between this and your critique of the takings clause, or your pulling back of this, which is that self-government, as you just noted, is um, something that is whatever, whatever the low governing institutions are, or something that are creation of state law the same way property law is, right? So like... Um, it's this. You see this in the judicial takings context, where it's like, can a ju judge take something if they're defining property law the same way? And similarly, we see the same thing in local governments. Local go states create local governments, and then they're limited. And there are all sorts of historical, like uh, uh, Judge Cooley's arguments about removing power from uh, Detroit. Um, uh, uh, and so. I, I kind of wonder how you think about how you'd think about applying this principle in a modern context. So let me give an, an example that's really hot right now. Um, the neighborhood of Buckhead is seeking to secede from the city of Atlanta, and they're making claims about self-governance. And this is actually not the first time this has happened in Georgia that another rich neighborhood, Eagle Rock, sought to secede and was only pulled back by the power of the bond market, actually, that kind of limit, which is the bond market freaked out that uh, if the rich neighborhoods were pulling back without assuming the debt, then they'd, never, they'd, they'd all lose their money. Um, and so how would you apply the right of self-government as a, either as a principle or as a doctrine to the question of can Buckhead secede? 
Yeah, great. So let me start with the doctrine, because this is the thing that I had been struggling with as I wrote the piece. Um, so, you know, I'm, my, my background is in history, um, and I tend to approach things descriptively. And then with law reviews, you have this part four in which you have to apply what you just described. And I've always struggled with part four of a paper uh, for partly this reason. Um, but another big part was this question that I had been developing and that is, um, you know, I think apparent in the anti-democracy piece, which is why should we hold ourselves up, like bound by a constitution? Like what, what is the principle that requires us um, to apply a constitution or not do something because we think a constitution commands otherwise? Um, and I think that's actually just a really difficult question, um, particularly in a context like this, where the circumstances imagined by the authors of something like the right to assemble are just so different from the circumstances today. Um, like to say that, you know, you can imagine many ways in which suburban Atlanta governs itself, um, but to suggest that they must do it because of what the, you know, what, what Samuel Adams thought strikes me, like, I, I, it's difficult for me to imagine running any society based like that. Um, so doctrinally, totally unclear. Um, and, and I think it depends sort of on what you think the purpose of a constitution is in that respect. But normatively, which I'm far more comfortable talking about, um, normatively, I think that the value um, advanced by a right to self-government or thinking about should the constitutions protect self-government, um, what, what I think that translates to is a principle that going back to the conversation about democracy, it's a principle about participation, about if you live in a community, you should have the ability to participate in what that community decides. And ideally that participation is equal. Ideally it's democratic. I don't think Samuel Adams was like a, you know, all and out Democrat. Uh, like I think that's anachronistic, but um, you know, today I would think, yeah, that like for me, that that is a really important principle that people should have the equal ability to participate in the communities that make decisions for them. And so, when it comes to um, to political equality or equal participation, I don't think that translates into not being bound by laws that you disagree with. I don't think equal participation means uh, is is the same thing as unanimity. That to the extent you disagree with what the majority thinks or what the community thinks, you can escape or you can immunize yourself. And th this was the trouble that this um, sort of like right of self-government presents, which is, like, is this a immunity from laws you don't like? Like you don't like what Congress is doing, so secede. You don't like what the state's doing, secede. You don't like what Atlanta's doing or Bucket's doing, secede. Um, and so I think for me, where the right to assemble is really relevant are in contexts in which people are excluded from governance, in which they lack the same sort of like ability to participate in government that other people have. Um, and it's that problem that I think the right to assemble really gets at, as opposed to the sense of, I disagree with what the community is doing and want to get out of there. Yeah, so I just want to quickly follow up, which is that there's a classic problem in democratic theory called the boundary problem. How classic it is is like a actually somewhat clear. But Robert Dahl famously like you can't you can't infer anything about boundaries from theories of democracy because um, the the unit that would be making the decision 
on as equals is the thing defined by the boundary. Um, and so I wonder, can self-government tell us anything about boundaries as a principle in your idea? Or is it in fact, like, it's like a, it's, it, it has to be something that is not boundary definition because Dahl was right? Question mark. Yeah, I, I, I really don't think that democracy can say much about boundaries, particularly when we're talking not just about, um, particularly when we're talking about overlapping jurisdictions, like Congress in states or uh, Georgia and, um, uh, you know, the counties or the municipalities. Um, but even talking about within communities. And so, um, you know, David Graeber uh, uh, talked about this a lot in the context, not of, of boundaries, but just groups of people. Um, and so one of his arguments, you know, he was a, a theorist of consensus. And one of his arguments was to the extent you're going to have a community that is not um, bound by force, you need consensus because people can always leave. And so boundaries are just going to form based on what communities people want to be part of. To the extent that you don't want to be part of this community anymore, you think it's not serving your values, you can always get out of there, which is why consensus is so valuable, uh, because it ensures that everyone does feel like they should be part of the community. Um, and I think that that's probably generalizable at the, the boundary level. Um, but I, I, I also think that this is not necessarily an issue that should be decided at the level of municipalities. So in American governance, um, you know, one of the biggest problems with local government is the way in which boundaries perpetuate interlocal inequality. Um, that, you know, to the extent you allow everyone, every neighborhood to form its own municipality or its own government that's insulated from neighboring governments of the same sort of like formal level, um, then they can hoard and they can hoard, you know, good schools and property tax revenue. Um, and so, you know, I think that a strong argument, why I find it to be one of the most persuasive arguments for making these sorts of decisions at a higher level of generality. So not letting Atlanta or its neighboring, or not letting the, um, you know, like the various municipalities in Gwinnett County decide where the boundaries are going to lie, but leaving that decision to Georgia. Uh, I, I think one of the strongest arguments there is escaping that conflict allows for the redistribution of interlocal inequalities or the elimination of interlocal inequalities. Um, but I, I don't have a great answer to, to, the, to the, the boundary problem at the You're level right. of like, how does democratic theory resolve this conflict? And, and surely Samuel Adams <laughs> didn't either. So it's a, it's a, you're in good company. All right. So to close out, I, I just want to, you know, ask you to return to a really interesting moment a couple minutes ago when you were kind of meditating, not about uh, judicial power, but about the, the, the possible limits of constitutionalism itself. Um, and it, I, I just want to frame it in a way that unites the pieces we've been talking about, because um, you, you do the historian's move in the Sam Adams piece of saying, well, OK, I've shown you empirically that it's an accident that the assembly stuff in the First Amendment is proximate to speech. And maybe and these are your words, it's for the best that it got essentially conflated with speech in doctrine and that's somebody else's problem. Um, but it's sort of implied that there are resources within our constitutional tradition and, um, to go a different way than that conflation has involved. And 
maybe in parallel in the um, anti-democracy piece, you you celebrate this extraordinary Harvard Law Review note called Pack the Union, which basically um, suggests you think that we have to exploit the possibilities within the current constitutional order um, for the sake of a different future. And, you know, it's, it's, it keys into such get a kind of interesting raging debate going on. You know, I'm thinking of like Sean Wilentz, who says we must understand that the end of slavery was, was already teleologically designed in as a possibility to the constitution and, you know, others are wrong. And those who before 1861 who condemned the constitution were wrong to do so. And Noah Feldman is wrong to say that the constitution had to be broken in order to set up a framework for democracy. I would say that Feldman is wrong to say that, you know, the, the constitution that Abe Lincoln, you know, broke and remade sets up such a thing and we need to break it again. But it seems like these two articles are, are, are kind of leaning towards Willens. And they're sort of saying, well, we have to work within the, the constitutional tradition, exploiting recessive possibilities like the assembly clause or you know, strategizing to pack the union, which the constitution allows in order to get amendments made. I mean, is that, is that, is that a fair reading of like your, your kind of political sensibility um, as, as a lawyer or, or, or because before you were kind of pointing beyond working within constitutionalism as a necessity. And, and that seems to point in a very different direction in a sense from both pieces. So with, with no, I would I wouldn't put myself in Wilens's camp in that respect. Like I don't I don't think that for one thing, I don't think that the constitution at the state level or at the federal level offers much guidance uh, in, in answering any of the questions for how should we continue to govern ourselves. Like it offers um, you know great language. It offers um, it, it promotes certain values. And those values become part of the political vocabulary. Like, you know, due process would not be uh, a meaningful concept in, you know, current politics if uh, the 14th Amendment or 5th Amendment had used the law of the land. Um, You know, it's only because of its location in the Constitution that that has become part of the political conversation. And so I guess, you know, in in thinking about like the... um, the conflict before the Civil War over the Constitution was pro-slavery, anti-slavery. Um, you know, if I had been a participant in that conversation, uh, you know, I, I think my my approach, or I guess I don't even have to speculate. I can just talk about today. My my, my approach is that the Constitution matters as a source of vocabulary for how Americans talk about justice. Um, and so disregarding the Constitution or just saying that the Constitution is irrelevant to current debates strikes me as just unhelpful in trying to persuade people that we can have a better society, saying that this is consistent with our values. And not just the Constitution, but this is consistent with the Declaration of Independence or this is consistent with Abraham Lincoln or Frederick Douglass or other um, you know, 
Susan B. Anthony or other people who have come before that like this is part of a tradition it is an argument for um, you know radical change as well as stability. It, it's saying that what we're promoting is not this alien concept, but um, taking certain values to their conclusion. And that's sort of how I think about the Constitution as well, that grounding things in constitutional argument is not legally necessary uh, for achieving them in the future. You know, I think starting with the birth of the Constitution itself, the Articles of Confederation did not provide for a Constitution to replace it, yet here we are. Um, and I don't think legal, like legalism in that respect is, is all that relevant to modern debates, but I do think that the values expressed in the Constitution are. And so I think where I ultimately come down on this sort of debate is um, that we must decide for ourselves what kind of society we want to live in. And I would regard it as anti-democratic to suggest that there are limits imposed on us, legal limits imposed on us by prior generations that we cannot amend. And particularly in the constitutional level where those legal limits are just really, really difficult to amend. And, and I, I raise in the piece, the, um, in the anti-democracy piece, the Corwin Amendment, which would have itself prevented all future amendment. So it said, you know, like Congress cannot interfere with the domestic institutions of the states and no amendment can change that. I think there, there's just no way I can imagine living in the 21st century feeling like we should continue to hold ourselves bound to that legal rule. But saying that I don't think that the Constitution should be legally binding in terms of its uh, framework for like what is possible going forward and what kind of society we can imagine is different from saying that I can imagine a democratic society and one way we could get there is by taking advantage of constitutional values that other people also subscribe to. And I think that that ultimately what is, is where the strategic nature of these pieces are, is, is connecting um, you know, a better future, which I think is normatively distinct from what the Constitution allows, from the values that the Constitution uh, promotes. Well, it's been an amazing hour. We're so grateful that you joined us. This is great. That was a, this is a ringing endorsement of pragmatism in, in, in favor in virtue of, for kind of furtherance of idealism. So I thought that was wonderful also. So thank you so much. This was really great. Yeah, thank you for having me. This is a lot of fun.